now on Radio Italia Uno, it's time to change the world with Matt McQuinley. The energy, the faith, the devotion which we bring to this endeavor will light our country and all who serve it. And the glow from that fire can truly light the world. We focus on changing the world for the better by taking personal responsibility, canceling cancel culture, discussing and listening to each other on topics like leadership, cultural trends, business, history, and more. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Right now on Radio Italia Uno, 87.6 FM. Hello and welcome to Change the World with Matt McQuinley. And today our guest is someone who has decided that she wants to take an active role in making the world a better place for South Australians. The Honorable Sarah Game is a mother of three, a licensed veterinarian, teacher, and as of April 2022, a South Australian MLC. Sarah, thanks for taking time out of your busy schedule to be here today. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Well, my understanding, Sarah, is that your parents separated at seven, so it was mostly you and your mom growing up, uh, and you're an only child, and your maternal grandparents were Jewish, born here in Australia, but your paternal grandparents were Lithuanian and German, who left after World War II because their countries were pretty much destroyed, and your dad specifically was Lithuanian, and he was the eldest of eight kids, right? That's right. Okay, and, and... he was brought up in a housing trust here in Australia at the poverty line or maybe below or just slightly above the poverty line. And he taught you that, you know, if you work hard, you can be anything, basically. That's right. And, and that was your philosophy when you were younger. In your first address to Parliament, uh, you said that your, your vision has changed, your perception has changed a little bit, and working hard is part of it but also that government needs to get out of the way and remove some of these obstacles and level the playing field uh, to help people be successful. Now, you yourself, you said, and I wouldn't normally talk this much before you get to talk, but the reason I'm talking is I want the audience to understand, okay, that you're somebody of character who's not been born with a silver spoon in their mouth, who's not born to privilege so they get to be in parliament, but somebody that's come from humble beginnings – and is now want, wants to serve. So that, that's why I'm prattling on, okay? And then I'm going to shut up, all right? But it's, it's more believable if I say it than you say it. I appreciate it. <laughs> okay? So now you think that the key, and I, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, okay, but the key to uh, helping uh, is not helping one situation. It's not just working hard. But it's also getting rid of this victim philosophy. And you you struggled in school yourself until about year 10, and it all changed for you when you met a certain math teacher. And what did that guy teach you? Can you tell us about that, please? Well, that's exactly right. And I, I just want to say, I mean, thank you so much for mentioning my dad as well, because my dad was an amazing man. He did it really tough, um, and he became a really successful uh, dentist who I had a lot of respect for. But I guess you're right with what you said, that I have uh, a bit of a softer opinion that we do need to do maybe a little bit more uh, scaffolding uh, for people because um, I saw my dad, um, you know, the toll that it took on him um, and, and the sacrifices he made really to give me a much better life than he had. 
But that said, uh, as you said, you know, like a lot of young people, I was struggling for various reasons at school. Um, you know, I wasn't really a great student. By the time year 10 came around, uh, I was doing pretty poorly, actually. And I'm eternally grateful to my mathematics teacher, Mr. Weathered, who I'd love to get back in contact with, um, but haven't been able to find him uh, for his really uh, honest truth to me. And he found me in the hallway once and he asked me, Sarah, what would you like to do when you leave school? And I gave a few ideas and he just said to me, well, at the moment, you've got no options. Um, and no one had really been that honest with me. And I really appreciated that honesty. And luckily for me, I decided actually that night that I was going to go home and turn it all around. But as I have expressed to you, it's not easy. Uh, I decided to work hard, try hard and focus. But I still had uh, a number of experiences after that of failing and, and doing terribly. Uh, so I needed persistence, but ultimately I, I turned myself around, got into veterinary medicine, as you said, and I guess it instilled in me a really strong passion to help others and to feel that if I could do it, uh, others could as well. Mm. Wow, there's so much to unpack there. I, I, I really want to talk a little bit about I, – I, I want to highlight one thing you said about this math teacher. He told you that you had no options. Yes. So – what I'm hearing is, at least from your point of view, okay, that it's best to be straight up with the kids, not, not totally coddle them. Obviously, we need to be compassionate, but tell them, hey, listen, you're on the wrong path, buddy, but you can change it rather than just you know, give every kid a ribbon, say they're great, and then when they're out in the real world, then they figure out they got tra- challenges. That's exactly it. I mean, it was it was harsh, but it was true because I'd totally got, um, I, I think, a bit sidetracked and possibly a little bit indulgent, actually, with my own sort of wallows um, about various matters um, at, at that time. I think, you know, my parents had separated. I'd had a few school changes. You've got a, a friendship issues. Um, and... Uh, Really, it was good to be refocused that that was my time. You know, this was my time to focus on on me and do as best I could. So I really appreciated that. But he followed up that tough advice with his willingness to give his time. So fortunately or unfortunately for him, he had me for the next uh, two years almost outside his door uh, every recess and lunch with questions. Mm -hmm. So And he always helped me happily. And uh, I did extremely well. I did advanced mathematics and uh, I got uh, full marks, actually, uh, in my year 12. So he, I massively turned around from someone that was failing to someone who did did brilliantly. But my learning from that wasn't really how talented I was. It was that it was evidence of what hard work and persistence can achieve. Uh, and I think most people uh, can do so so much more than, than, than what they think, particularly young people who maybe aren't achieving uh, their best right now. And I think it also instilled in me a passion for not pigeonholing and not limiting uh, students because I think too often we look at kids and say, well, this is what you're good at and this is what you're good at, um, and we limit them. 
Wow. So much there to <laughs> unpack again. Um, I just wanted to say a couple quick things, things that I want to underline that you said. I'm just repeating back, and if I'm incorrect, you tell me, okay? But I just want to point out that what I heard was, boom, if you're somebody that wants to help other people, help those who want to help themselves, like like your, your math teacher did, because you wanted the help, so he was willing to be there hand-in-hand hand with you and give you the help to help you be successful. That's right. And then the other thing I heard is we've all got it tough. I mean, when we're when we're all you were in year ten, so when we're all teenagers, we all think everything's a drama, but we still have to drive on. That that's right. And you reminded me of a study that I read many, many, many years ago. Actually, you've reminded me of so many things. I I, I don't want to talk too much because you're so interesting, but. But you reminded me um, of when you said that we put these expectations on these kids uh, of a study that was done uh, by a Harvard professor and a teacher, a uh, primary school teacher, I think it was, out in California in the 60s uh, called Rosenthal was his name. And he, what he did is he took – and maybe this is a little bit unethical, but it's the 60s, so he got away with it. So he took, he took uh, a group of children, and he had three groups. He, t- he told – they told one group, one teacher – they split the kids into three groups, and they took one teacher and said, okay, now your group, your kids, they're just not that bright. Don't expect too much out of them. Just do the best you can do. Then he t- they took another group of kids, and they took another teacher, and they said, your group of kids, they're average. You'll get some average results out of them. You know, there's, they'll do okay. And then he took a third group of kids, and they told the teacher, now your kids, oh, man, they are so bright. These kids get, oh, they're so smart. And I tell you what, you know, some of them are going to whine because they want, they're lazy. They don't want to work that hard. They're going to try to weasel out of stuff. Don't listen to them. They can do the work. Pile it on them, man. They can, they can learn anything you throw at them. And then at the end of the year, they gave the kids the tests, and the what they found was the kids that – uh, they thought were not that bright, did pretty poorly. The kids that were average did average. And the kids that were the, – the teacher was told they were brilliant did brilliantly. The interesting thing was they were all chosen at random, and all the kids had similar test scores going in. So it was the expectations. So uh, – and again, I'm not one of these guys that thinks, man, with positive thinking, you can do anything. But the role in leadership – of and the expectations that we have of people does help determine their success. Absolutely. And I know it's a bit of a jump because we've mentioned that I was a veterinarian, uh, but I also was a teacher. And I think now is a good time for me to mention my own experience with exactly um, the story you've just given because uh, overseas in the United Kingdom, I taught biology to year 11 and 12 uh, students at a large college. There was about 3,000 students that were there, just year 11 and 12. And about 13 um, biology teachers, and I, I was one of them, and I had five classes. I only taught there for three years. But what they found was, uh, even though I was a new teacher, in each class that I had, all five classes in all three years, so 15 classes, that the kids I taught, uh, they did better than uh, any uh, group of children they'd ever had. And I ended up getting this beautiful letter from the principal saying, you know, wow, Sarah, thank you so much. Uh, Sarah, you must have put in so much marking and so much hard work and so much effort and we'd love you to help our other teachers because you're clearly you know very talented. And that letter was, was a beautiful letter, but it did sort of miss the mark because my kids did better 
because they worked harder. My kids worked so hard. And in the United Kingdom, what they do is they give you a sort of expected grade. So they say, look, in year 10, this kid did about this well. So we think they should get about a C um, at year 12 equivalent. But if you can get them a bit higher, that'd be great. Well, I never really paid much attention to that. I I always said to the children, what do you want to do? Let's aim where you want to go. And we always aimed high and we had high expectations. And I'd like to think that we had fun and we had a mutually respectful environment, but I could also be really tough. And that experience showed me kids like learning. Kids loved coming to my classes because they liked learning and they did well. Mm. Well, that's powerful stuff. And and after this politician thing, you know, if you decide you want to change, maybe you can open up a leadership college and help people uh, get the best out of other people. That sounds awesome. We're going to take a quick break and we're going to be back in just a little bit with Sarah Game MLC. You're listening to Change the World with Matt McQuinley on Radio Italia Uno 87.6 FM. We're back with Sarah Game, MLC, and uh, I just want to, in the last uh, session, we talked a little bit about uh, you as a young girl growing up and and some of your instances and and situations when you were a kid and and in schooling, and then we jumped to you becoming a teacher. What made you switch from veterinary science into teaching? Well, that's right. Because so you were a successful veterinarian with a practice. That's, Sorry. That's right. I worked for a number of years uh, as a veterinarian, but I think it was my own experience uh, as a child with my mathematics teacher who'd inspired me to really work hard and turn my life around that I just had this burning passion for children and young people, which is which is still there and particularly... I guess, relating to children and young people that were like me, you know, who were struggling and maybe uh, underestimating themselves. And uh, that burning passion took me uh, to do a uh, teaching qualification. It was only nine months at the King's College in London. I mean, I actually got awarded there the Blackwall Prize for the most promising promising teacher um, because I just had such a love of it. And uh, the first college I actually worked at, uh, I think I mentioned to you previously, it got closed down, unfortunately, because I chose to go and work uh, at a community college that was in a very, very poor socioeconomic area where I could really, I thought, make the biggest impact. Unfortunately, there it was too much of a struggle uh, and they brought another principal in to try and turn it around, but it, it did end up getting closed down, although those students taught me a lot actually and uh, interacting with them and getting to know them was a real highlight. But uh, yeah, to answer your question, it was about trying to make a difference uh, the way my math teacher had made a difference to me. Wow, that's awesome. That You know, that reminded me of a, of a story that I read many, many years ago and, and, and a movie that I saw even. But um, it's kind of like and, – and I used to say it's important to be a nudge is what I used to tell my, my workers when I, when I was uh, uh, had my own business. And it sounds like you were a nudge. So uh, a nudge is somebody that just set, goes to the people that can help them and try, keeps nudging them, keeps bumping their elbow and going, hey, you know, can you help me out? Hey, can you help me out? And, and I think that's key to success. I, I'm reminded, you know, the story of Ann Sullivan and Helen Keller. Yeah. Ann Sullivan, when she was in the poorhouse, she leaped 
in front of the guy that was inspecting the poorhouse and said, please, please take me to the Perkins School for the Blind. So she got educated. Yes. And it sounds to me that you th- you that that's what you're advocating. Is is that the case? That well, that's why. And I was just going to add to that um, that since I got this new political career, I mean, I met with. Um, a lovely man, actually, who was an ex-politician in his 90s now. And he asked to meet me when I got elected, I think, out of curiosity, just to find out, you know, who I was. And we were talking only for a, a few minutes. And he said to me, and he was the first person ever to say this, but I think possibly he was right. He said, Sarah, you know what your problem is? And I said, no. And he said, you're an idealist. He said, that that's your problem. Um, but it was really a beautiful thing to say. And I think it relates to exactly what we're talking about now in the sense that I just genuinely believed with my whole heart and passion that with enough uh, effort and passion from me and enough effort and passion from the students, they could do anything they wanted. And even if that wasn't quite right, it certainly led to them doing a lot better uh, mm. than, than with a, a different attitude. Wow. So the politician told you that <laughs> that was your problem. You, had too, you were too idealistic. Okay. I, I don't think – I could be wrong, but I don't think that many statues are built to pessimists. And I don't think that pessimists as a group – accomplish as much as people that uh, look at it the other way. No, but maybe I'm wrong. It's been a real blessing, I think, my idealism. And mm. uh, yes, I think something I can't shake now. Okay. I want to move on to your life has been so, in some ways, inspirational because you remind me of uh, Abraham Lincoln. He told, he said once that about all the adversity he had, that I will prepare myself and someday my day will come. Or I, I might have missed paraphrase that but that's pretty close and um you your father who was this i I don't want to say tough guy but big strong lithuanian you can do it just work hard a guy uh ended up taking his own life uh relatively recently which in february that's right yeah which obviously was terrible how do you handle that? Because, you know, it's kind of like Ernest Hemingway. He spent his whole life writing these books about grace under pressure, and then he kills himself. I mean, I, yes. how did that affect you, affect your family? And Yes. Well, I guess, you know, two things uh, that I do say have, have helped me. Um, uh, that firstly, I realized pretty much straight away, um, particularly with the nature. I mean, I was I was shocked. I I really had no idea. Although he had been up and down for a little bit, I really had no idea that that was going to happen at all. And so it was a huge shock. And so I think, firstly, I realised uh, that something had happened to me in my life uh, that would never ever be okay. And although that sounds negative, I found it um, and still find it comforting because. It really is never going to be okay, um, and therefore I don't have to get over it. I need to learn how to deal with it and manage it, and it will, it will always be with me uh, rather than uh, something that I expect myself to just sort of move on from. But this, the second uh, factor that has helped me, I guess, is perspective because I also realize that many, many, many people have something um, that's happened to them in their life that will never ever be okay and so I think uh, perspective uh, and being grateful uh, have really uh, assisted me uh, to deal with that but my dad I mean he was just amazing he was such a resilient uh, and fantastic person as we mentioned earlier he grew up in a really difficult home although his mother was a a beautiful and and loving person they had no money and his father was violent and and a gambler and sold everything pretty much that they had 
my dad, oldest of, of eight, um, and there were five boys, five and under, I believe. So it was, a, it was a difficult life. He dropped out of school early, but he managed to go back to school and uh, put himself through dental school, and he became a very successful dentist. He owned a number of practices uh, here and also in Sydney. But it also meant he was just a really tough dad, but I, I think... I say that positively because I really appreciate now that he taught me to be uh, resilient um, and he certainly had no time for this victim mentality or worries me. I mean, my dad just had it so tough uh, that he wasn't really interested in many of my own complaints growing up, which which sounds harsh, but I think it was good for me. and It, it t- taught me perspective and um, getting on. So... Um, look, it is, yeah, it is difficult and I still uh, have times where I'm not okay um, and, you know, that's okay. So, uh, but my dad in the end, I think, you know, he was 71 and he'd seen through a lot of life difficulties and he was just, uh, you know, he was worn out. Mm. Wow. So I think I, I'm sure that an experience like that makes you an empathetic leader, which, I mean, I hate to sound, I, I don't know if I sound... F- flip or or what I, i'm not trying to i swear to god no. but i but i i just the silver lining is that in that is that the people that you're serving have an empathetic leader well I mean, that's, that's why i've spoken about it because to be honest i've always been very um private actually about difficulties uh i guess i've never really had a platform either but i've certainly not shared uh with friends and family uh events in the past i guess and really kept them to myself uh, but when this occurred to me, I think, one, I realized it was so uh, enormous that if I didn't uh, start sharing it, uh, I might go under. And secondly, I just always am looking for meaning. And I just, uh, yeah, there is an opportunity here to find some sort of meaning and to talk about it because there is still stigma. I, I, I feel it myself when I do talk about it. You know, uh, people think, oh, goodness, you know, why are you talking about suicide? Uh, you know, that's a difficult topic. Uh, and I think families of, um, uh, you know, members where there has been a suicide uh, still do struggle with that stigma. So it is important to talk about it. What have you been able to do in your role as an MLC to work on that issue? Well, thank you so much for this platform because I guess one of the things I can do is, is speak on shows like this and uh, one of the uh, centres I've drawn a, attention to is the Urgent uh, Mental Healthcare Facility on Grenfell Street, which is a 24-7 centre. What I really like about it is that you can just self-refer and walk straight in. So a lot of people don't realise that. They think when they're having a crisis that they need to go and you see their GP and be referred off somewhere with a mental um healthcare plan but this center on Grenville Street you can just walk straight in you don't need any ID you don't need any referral and you'll be met with um, a clinician but also uh, somebody with lived experience which I think is really important but the other factor that I do talk about is I believe that a lot of what we can do to deal with the mental health crisis we have in society at the moment it, it doesn't cost any money I think uh, remembering to be kind um, and inclusive goes a really long way. I think my father was lonely. I think a lot of older people are lonely. I mean, I've been lonely myself as a separated parent. Uh, you often feel uh, a bit uh, excluded or you don't have your kids on certain uh, festivities. And I think as a society, just remembering to reach out and include people uh, is also really important. 
Wow, that's powerful stuff. We're going to be back in just a little bit with Sarah Game. Uh, she's going to talk about uh, how she overcame and, and what it was like when her second child was actually born blind. We're back with Sarah Game. Uh, in the last session, we talked about uh, your father uh, passing away, but that's not where <laughs> your adversity has ended. You've had a lot of more more opportunities to build the character to prepare you for the role that you're in now. Your second daughter was born blind. I mean, just saying that out loud as a parent, my stomach's flip-flopping. I don't know how I could have handled that. Can you tell me a little bit about what that was like and... Well, I certainly will. And I just want to point out that I was lucky because the nature of her blindness blindness means that she, you know, has recovered um, from that um, situation. But we didn't know that at the time. I would just start by saying that um, as an only child myself uh, of a single parent household, my mum, you know, she did a good job, but she was a full-time working mother and uh, we didn't have much family or support around us. And I, I guess I just found that I lived quite an isolated childhood. So when I had my first uh, son, it was a real priority for me. I mean, I went on to have two more daughters, but it was a real priority for me that he didn't grow up um, – you know, isolated the way I was. And that's not to say that only children need to be isolated. It's just that my experience was isolating and we didn't have a lot of other family or cousins around. And so it was a, it was a priority for me to try and give him some sibling support. And when my daughter, in fact, was born, I actually realized immediately something was wrong. I mean, as soon as she um, came out, I sort of looked at her and I mean, I loved her and adored her uh, instantly, but I thought to myself, something's something's not quite right. And actually the doctors told me at the time, no, no, she's, she's fine. And, um, you know, my husband at the time uh, said, Sarah, you know, this is, this is ridiculous. You know, everything's okay. But by about eight weeks, I really was confident something was wrong. And we took her to the best specialist in London. And I apologized uh, for my concern and thought I was just an overanxious mother. And I was waiting to be told uh, that everything was really actually okay. Uh, and the pediatrician said to me, Sarah, she's, she's not making eye contact the way that we would expect. And she's not opening her eyes the way that we would expect. And he referred me on uh, to another specialist um, and they did more tests. And again, I was waiting for him to just confirm that everything was fine. Um, and he actually confirmed uh, that she at the time was completely blind. She couldn't see uh, light or dark or, or anything. And what I was in fact noticing was that absence of eye contact that I guess we enjoy so much when we're mothers. I mean, new babies don't always open their eyes and they don't always make eye contact, but you certainly do get some uh, eye contact. Whereas my daughter had by this time developed nystagmus, so her eyes were flicking um, because they couldn't focus. And we didn't know until a number of other months had passed um, and more tests were done or whether this would be something she stood any chance from recovering from because there are a lot of, or there are a few areas um, that can cause this. It can be a brain uh, damage or the optic nerve or the retina at the back of the eye. And if it was the retina at the back of the eye or the optic nerve, uh, she would have been blind her whole life, whereas if it was from the visual cortex in the brain, there was a, a chance that that might recover. But we wouldn't really know until she was about one uh, or so uh, what her eyesight would be. And we were lucky uh, that her eyesight did uh, recover and she's perfectly fine now. So I, I, I count myself as very grateful. But that time was very, very difficult. And also I'd had two children very close together. So my son was only 15 months 
old uh, when my second child was born. So I, I had a lot on. I was tired and uh, I felt hugely uh, guilty that I might have burdened my son uh, rather than uh, giving him the support that I wanted. But, um, yeah, it was a very difficult time, although ultimately I'm very lucky. Mm. And, and so, so are my children. So what, what have you learned from that experience? Well, I mean, I would love to say that I dealt with that experience really well. I'm not sure that I did. I was certainly, I'm very proud, I guess, looking back on it, that I managed to get through that experience um, and uh, parent my children. Uh, But I did find it extremely difficult. I think, look, one quote that I do really um, appreciate and wish I had heard earlier is that there's only two experiences in life there's those that you find immediately positive um and and uh, rewarding and there's those that you grow from and so i really uh try to take that approach with everything that's difficult now and that that was certainly an experience that i that i grew from it deepened my empathy it deepened uh my appreciation for the, the world and what people go through and in the end uh i I had adopted approach that it would be it would be okay, you know. Uh, I, we would get through this as a family, um, and I would find a way for uh, her to to have a full and and rich life. And it showed me, yeah, the, you know, the strength of love, I guess, as well. So you feel it made you more empathetic leader. I mean, of your family at the time. That's right. And probably in your role that you have now, I would imagine. Yes. And it also, you know, helped you understand that no matter what is thrown at you, you can overcome it. Is that what I'm hearing? That's right. I mean, life's difficult for lots of people. And I don't think, uh, I certainly don't want to paint my life as any more difficult than anybody else. I think life is difficult for lots of people. And that's why it's so important that we're kind and that we're inclusive uh, where we where we have the capacity to be to others. Mm. Well, what do you feel... Uh, let's talk about the role you're in now. I mean, what do you feel the biggest challenges that we as a society are facing right now? Well, that's, that's a very difficult question, but I would say one of my big passions and certainly an area that we are facing that's hugely important now would be, uh, mental health with young people. Mm. Um, And I'm certainly very passionate about education and the role that education can play as a leveler for people mm-hmm. and seeing young people uh, succeed. And uh, we have spoken briefly about this before that I would love to see young people taught uh, more, more of a focus when we're talking about mental well-being for young people. I think we need to make sure, yes, it's very important to make people feel they can talk about their feelings um, and reach out and that it's okay to be sad um, and so on. But it will always come down to uh, what's next. Mm. You know, if if something uh, unfair has happened to you, what's next? If there's been a trauma in your life, okay, but what's next? And so I think teaching young people to be resilient, which I think a big part of that is being grateful, having perspective, um, contributing, um, learning about uh, philanthropy and the importance of uh, philanthropists, um, a lot of that safeguards us from feeling uh, too depressed. Well, certainly it works for me. Mm. So your attitude, uh, your 
what you think we should be trying to instill in our children as parents and maybe in even education uh, is it's okay to have the feeling, but what are you going to do about it? I think is that, is that what you're saying? That's right. I think the the, the two uh, aspects I probably want to stress here are one, you know, having high expectations and really going for it. Mm. Let's not focus on where you're at now or the failure that you had or let's just really go for it. Where do you want to be? And let's target there with our aspirations and with our teaching. And I think we need to have high expectations, particularly of our kids in these low socioeconomic areas where I think a lot of the time our expectations are low and that is unsatisfactory because we want to have uh, the best in society and we want to have our decision makers not full of people who've um, had privilege uh, we want to afford that uh, to the best the, the best candidates and I think that only happens with a level education uh, playing field but secondly to, to do well at anything you've got to have a reasonable level of emotional and mental well-being mm. and my understanding from going around talking with schools and principals is that despite best efforts and a lot of money being thrown at it also for mental well-being in our young people, our young people are facing a crisis uh, of anxiety and depression. And I think part of that answer is not being too inward looking. You know, we've got to be outward looking uh, and uh, focused on how to live a meaningful life. Wow, that that is some uh, ancient wisdom, actually, <laughs> from yes. from a new source. I mean, they, basically, what I'm hearing is Lao Tzu used to say that. I mean, the Cincinnatus, Jesus of Nazareth. Those who should be last should be first, and those who are first should be last. So, you, what, what I'm hearing you say is being of service to others is what's going to also help you feel good about yourself because you feel like you have a life of purpose. Is that what I'm hearing you say? Absolutely. I mean, that has been for me, uh, what's kept me afloat at times is, is finding meaning and purpose. Mm. Well, it's hard to not, uh, it's hard to not feel happy if you know exactly why you're getting up in the morning. That's, that's true. Um, I actually, something you said earlier just reminded me of a, uh, a story that I saw. Well, it was an interview that I saw on television years and years ago. It was Jim Lovell. And I don't know if you know the story of Apollo 13, but Apollo 13 was on its way to the moon and their oxygen tank exploded. Okay, and all their air is going out, and they're and they're in real trouble. I mean, they're a quarter mil, close to a quarter million miles from Earth. I mean, they're I mean, and and the commander of the ship uh, of the spaceship looks at it and goes, "Okay, well," and he said his first reaction was, "Oh my God, why me? How did this happen? Oh poor me, what am I going to do?" And he said exactly what you said. He said he did that for about a minute. He went, "Oh." How could this happen to me? How is this happening? And he said, well, then I thought about it and I said, well, it is me. It has happened. What's next? And, and, you know, everybody, not everybody knows the story listening, but Apollo swung around the moon, came back. Everybody landed safely, even though they had less than a 1% chance of success. So, you know, that having that attitude, you know, is, uh, is key to success and, and to have a leader like you say that and be promoting that makes me feel a lot better about about our chances as a society. So thank you. Well, I think that's my dad uh, talking and one of the values he instilled in me. You know, I, I don't actually remember a lot of my childhood that well. I don't know if it's if I remember it less well than others. But I do remember being a small child and walking through a car park very clearly with my father and I was having a strop, you know, about something. 
And I said to him, you know, that's just really unfair. It's really, really unfair. <laughs> and uh, my dad said to me, life's unfair. Get used to it. And, you know, he, he, he was just brilliant. And I didn't realise at the time that my dad just gave me so much. My mother did the exact same thing. I remember one time I was like seven or eight or something and I said – and, and my mom didn't usually go off on me, but she lit me up. I, I said, she said, do whatever. And I said, that's not fair. And my mom was like, what? When did I teach you life was fair? Life's never fair. <laughs> Life's not fair. You get used to it. You make the best out of what you can. And, and uh, yeah, that's so funny. Exactly. Yeah. And we appreciate this as yeah, adults. I'm, yeah, I'm so yeah. glad um, yeah. that I wasn't rewarded for overindulging myself. Mm. And, uh, yes. Well, we're going to be back in just a little bit with some uh, other key insights from Sarah Game MLC. You're listening to Change the World with Matt McQuinley on Radio Italia Uno, 87.6 FM. We're back with the Honorable Sarah Game MLC. And uh, we talked about a lot of stuff in your, in your life, uh, not your whole life, obviously, but we've talked about a lot of things, the challenges you had growing up, your family uh, being immigrants, your, uh, you know, your father uh, taking his own life, your daughter being born blind, all these other obstacles that you've overcome that have helped you prepare for the moment you're in now where, you're a, where you can be a servant leader. Uh, in the little bit of time that we have left, the three or four minutes, can you tell us what you want the audience to carry away from this time that we've had together the most? Yes. Well, I'd love, firstly, anyone listening to reach out and look up what I'm about because I'm at, here to represent uh, people of South Australia and know your views. So if anyone uh, wanted to look me up at Sarah Game MLC, I'm on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, um, and I'd love to hear from people so I can represent you. Uh, the carryaways for me are... Let's not limit kids. I think high expectations, um, passionate um, teachers, uh, instilling that confidence to really aim high and work hard uh, in young people. And also just the fact that we can really all work together to make a much kinder society. I mean, I, I'm lucky. I've got a, a great job and lovely friends and beautiful children. And I still find myself, um, as a separated parent as well, I, I do find myself lonely and I can only imagine how difficult it is uh, for others especially when they're going through a difficult time so I, I think we can do so much by including others uh, and being kind mm. so basically you'd be compassionate as well as uh, a focus on high achieving that's right is that what you're focus on doing more not less Exactly. All right. Well, thank you very much, Sarah, for being with here with us today. It's been our privilege. Thank you so much. And uh, I want to thank Mark Aston for his ongoing mentorship. And most importantly, I want to thank all of you for listening. And as always, I'm going to leave you with a brief inspirational message. Actually, uh, Sarah, you inspired me uh, to give this message uh, because – of the fact that you're a servant leader and that the adversity that you have have had has been the crucible that has helped mold you into the servant leader that you are today. And this story you might have heard before, but I think it's worth repeating. Uh, 
In 16, this child was forced out on his own. In 18, his mother died. In 31, he failed in business. In 32, he ran for state legislature, and he lost. In 32, he also lost his job, and he couldn't get into law school. In 33, he borrowed some money to start another business and invest it, and he failed. He spent 17 years paying off the debt. In 34, he ran for state legislature again. He won. In 35, he was engaged to be married, but his fiance died. In 36, he had a complete and total nervous breakdown. In 38, he tried to be in the state legislature, and he lost. In 40, he sought to become an elector. He lost. In 43, he ran for Congress. He lost. In 46, he ran for Congress. He won. In 48, his party decided they did not want him to run again. In 49, he ran for land officer. He lost. In 54, he ran for Senate. He lost. In 56, he was tapped to be vice president. He lost. In 58, he lost again in a Senate race. But in 1860, Abraham Lincoln was elected president of the United States. Just a few, and I stress a few, of the challenges and problems that Abraham Lincoln had that I left out are, he started the Black Hawk War as a captain, but he ended it as a private. He had malaria in 1830 and 1835. He suffered from chronic and clinical depression. For this, he took special pills. The only problem with these pills, though, is they gave him mercury poisoning. He had multiple endocrine neoplasma type 2B, which is a disease that afflicts only 4 out of 100 million people. It manifests as tumors on all his major organs. He had tumors on his mouth that gave him big blubbery lips. He had tumors on his eyes. He had gastrointestinal issues. And this disease also made him tall, thin, and gangly. In fact, Abraham Lincoln was so ugly that the U.S. government had to touch up the penny to make it acceptable for circulation. Historical fact. In 1862, while the Union was losing the Civil War, his son William died. In 1863, in the middle of the Civil War, he had smallpox. His son Eddie had already died 12 years before in 1850. His wife was bipolar. She suffered from migraines and ended up institutionalized at one point. No president in the United States' entire history, including Donald Trump, was vilified more by the press than Abraham Lincoln. He was referred to by the press as the ape in Washington. The entire Civil War began with his election. Imagine being elected president and half the country just leaves in protest. How did he respond to all of this? Well, at age 23, after losing his job, he enlisted in a volunteer regiment during the Black Hawk War and was elected captain. In 20, at tw the age of 24, when his business failed, he rebounded by being appointed postmaster and surveyor. A year later, he would win election for the very first time to the Illinois State Legislature. At the age of 27, despite having a nervous breakdown the year before, he bounced back by getting reelected to the state legislature. At the age of 29, he received his license to practice law in Illinois after studying for years on its own. It's worth noting that Abraham Lincoln had less than nine months of formal schooling. And in the next couple years, he was admitted to practice law in the United States Circuit and District Courts. He became a law partner and one of the most successful lawyers in the capital of his home state of Illinois. 
After failure to receive the nomination three years earlier, he was finally elected to the House of Representatives. And at the age of 37, he was forced to step down from Congress. A year later, he was admitted to practice law in front of the U.S. Supreme Court. At the age of 45, although he was defeated for the nomination for Senate, he began to emerge as a leader in a new party, which was formed to abolish slavery, the Republican Party. He was a strong voice in the anti-slavery movement, and the age of 51, he was elected 16th president of the United States. These experiences are what gave him the strength to hold the United States together, to free the slaves, and to give them the vote. Even though for the first two years of the Civil War, the United States was losing badly, even though many in the North wanted the war over and were happy to let the South go on their own way, even though very few Americans cared about freeing the slaves, and even though he would likely lose re-election by following this course, he stuck to the test. And remember, the greatest thing that he had to overcome was himself. He was manically depressive. His biggest obstacle was himself, his own mental health, his own physical health. As I have said, he kept the United States together ended slavery, gave African-Americans citizenship and the vote. What would the world be like today if he hadn't? If slavery didn't end in 1865 and the U.S. became two countries, not only would millions have been kept in bondage, it probably would have meant apartheid would have continued longer in South Africa. What would have happened in World War I? Unlikely the U.S. could have helped much in Europe as the Confederacy would have chosen one side, the U.S. the other. What would have happened in World War II? Well, the Confederate States of America would have had the same racial attitudes as Nazi Germany, and the war would have been fought in North America. There's no way the U.S. could have sent troops to Europe. What about the Cold War? Luckily, we'll never find out. Abraham Lincoln taught us many things, too many to talk about today. But one of them had to be that there are two kinds of people in the world. There are the kinds of people that suffer disappointments, discouragement, adversity, and dark, dark, dark times, and let themselves be beaten by them. And then there are the type of person who take these challenges, these disappointments, these failures, and learn from them, and use them to drive themselves towards success, to help others, and accomplish things that could possibly even change the world. My question for you is, is as always, which one are you?